0: entrepreneur, speaker, and coach, Lucinda Carney. Hello and welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. My name's Lucinda Carney and I'm your host. And would you believe it, this is our 21st episode. So moving swiftly into our episode as ever, this week I wanted to look at a topic which is being discussed in many ways. It's been discussed yet it hasn't. In fact, I'm talking to you today, the day after Boris was defeated in the Commons, I almost feel like this and performance appraisal is the Brexit argument of HR. But uh, hopefully we're a little bit more decisive, maybe, in terms of understanding when it's the right thing to do. And perhaps that's the uh, point we'll come out on. Anyway, I'll move swiftly onwards. I'm thinking I'll dig myself into a political hole here, which is probably not desirable. Before I move on to the actual meat of this debate, uh, I wanted to look at it because We know that there's debates about whether performance appraisals are good or bad and that's something we can look at. But one aspect that gets focused on within a performance appraisal is that of ratings. Because when you heard all the kerfuffle about the big companies apparently ditching performance appraisals, really what they were saying is that they were ditching their approach to ratings uh, in many places. And very interestingly, They often haven't when you look at what's happened in the background because ratings were intrinsically linked to their way of rewarding people. So it isn't always that simple, uh, although obviously it makes exciting news headlines. So in terms of what this is about, as I thought, let's look at when ratings work and when they don't. And I was inspired to do this episode because good old Rob Breiner posted um, an article out of the Industrial and Organisational Society Journal And I realize that most of us out there don't have times to read journals, don't have the time. This was called Getting Rid of Performance Ratings, Genius or Folly. And it's actually a synopsis of a debate that was apparently a standing room only debate um, a couple of years ago when they actually had their conference. So I thought it was worth me looking at this. But equally, I've also looked at this topic myself in the past. And I've got a white paper on this called To Rate or Not to Rate. So this episode, I'm going to just look at the outputs of the actual um, journal and what was said there, but also some of my own experience with regard to performance ratings. So I hope you'll find it of use and of interest. And as ever, really welcome your feedback. And thanks actually, because recently there's been quite a lot of feedback from people who are joining the HR Uprising group, who are suggesting episodes, which is fantastic. So please do tell me what you would find of interest and I will do my best to either research it or find a guest who knows something about it. So to rate or not to rate, that is the question. So you, if you're listening to this, are going to be potentially in an organisation where you're deciding to introduce ratings or you don't or you want to get rid of ratings or again, potentially somewhere in the middle. So the key point here, and actually this resonates those of you who listened to the podcast I did with Nick Holly last week a lot of what we're talking about is what is the problem you're trying to solve? This piece of us being really good evidence-based, business-focused, strategic HR professionals, it's about working out what is the, the problem we're trying to solve? And I suppose really, what is the purpose of the appraisal that you're going to use these ratings in? So, For example, is the appraisal going to be about increasing employee engagement, about talent retention? Is it about encouraging good quality conversations, etc.? Or is it about increasing productivity, performance and distributing reward? Those two purposes are really quite different. And actually, I would argue that the first one, putting ratings in place may well be a hindrance rather than um, a help. Whereas the second one, it's quite hard to fairly distribute reward without having some form of of rating. So it's a difficult question, but the first point is why are we doing this? What is the problem that we are trying to solve by putting a rating in place and not just put it in for the sake of it? I'd also point out that you can rate in certain aspects of an appraisal and not all of it. I've seen rating, I've seen appraisals where you have got Goodness knows how many ratings all the way through. And that is a brilliant example of where people lose the will to live and they are going to become a tick box. The more tick boxes, which a rating kind of is, you put in, the more you're kind of wearing down people's energy in relation to making decisions. It's hard. And particularly where we've all been managers, where you've got to have that conversation and agree that rating. You don't want to have a fight with people on a regular basis. You want it to be a useful conversation. So I would certainly say if you are using ratings in an appraisal, less is more. And you might decide therefore to agree a performance rating against each objective and have an overall one at the end if you need to link to reward. Or it may be about just pure conversations, in which case you might get rid of them altogether. So the answer already I'm saying is it does depend what do we see the pros and cons of performance ratings? So I've got some pros and cons that I have thought and I've experienced myself. And obviously there were some different arguments in the debate that came through that I was looking at. So the pros of something like this is that it allows organisations to differentiate between high and low performers. So if you want to distribute reward proportionately against performance then it's very hard to work out how to do that fairly without having some level of differentiation. Interestingly in terms of retaining talent and attracting talent there is a school of thought that says well I say school of thought there's some evidence which is in the paper that I'll link to which says that particularly millennials they like to have um, differentiation they like to be ranked. And in terms of attracting, well, they like to be ranked. Presumably, they like to feel that they're ranked high, but they like to see proportionate and how they how they um, stack up against their peers. And also uh, that high performers prefer organisations that they perceive to be meritocracies. And that makes sense because if they believe they're a high performer and. There appears to be correlation in the studies that I read uh, between people who were actually identified as high performers and their view that they wanted to be in an organisation, which you can make sense, who are going to reward them for their high performance. I certainly remember when I started out 20 odd years ago uh, in an organisation, which undoubtedly does differentiated performance now, and it was increments. And this was not an NHS or a public sector, it was a private sector organisation. And a friend of mine said to me, said, Well, it's ridiculous, they only pay us for getting older. Effectively, they're rewarding age as opposed to performance. And so that's not necessarily, you know, the motivation that we want to portray and that might be an argument why you do want some way of rewarding high performance and performance ratings appears to be the best way that we have of doing that at the moment. So it's about differentiation, it's about allowing us to distribute reward. It gives you a quantitative indication of performance this is an interesting one. You can see this is a pro and a con, but my view is if you want to drive high performance, then you want managers to have very clear conversations about what good looks like and to set clear objectives and agree clear objectives. If you have got a clear, smart objective, it should be quite easy to agree whether or not it has been met. However, if you want to identify a uh, variations of meeting it then you could quantify that so if i achieved an objective ahead of the target or if i overachieved on a metric then that might be um, me overperforming in terms of that so a higher performance exceeds or if i almost met something that might be an almost so you can see how you could set a hard target um, or goal and we do know that goals and feedback are um, attributed do drive performance then being able to quantify performance against that could be a helpful way in which people can realise how they could increase their performance. So if I identify that had I achieved this particular objective a month earlier, that would have been exceeding, that might motivate me to do things faster, sooner, in future. So it does give a performance discussion focus by having this quantitative, quantitative conversation. Of course, the downside of that is It's quite a tough conversation. It's quite a tiring conversation, um, emotionally draining conversation, possibly for managers. And you want it to be motivational. So you do need uh, the manager to have confidence and skill to be able uh, in both objective setting in the first place to be able to give that as a good quality conversation. And that leads me on nicely to the fact that few managers are really skilled in objectively measuring performance. They may not have had the training, but it is human nature that people don't like giving bad news and we shy away from those tough conversations. So we do need managers to have the courage and the skill and the confidence to be able to have those conversations, which probably all links back to us getting better at having overall feedback anyway so not only is that the case in terms of the ratings if we don't like doing it we're much more likely to bunch around the middle ratings um, and play it safe so then the conversation is probably demoralizing isn't really very motivational the flip side of that is also managers might either overrate for reasons uh, that they want someone to feel rewarded or they want that person to feel extra motivated and it may not be evidence-based on their actual performance the flip side of that is also people might underrate if they don't like somebody or if they have a, an issue with them. So there is obviously lots of room for bias. There's also plenty of evidence that uh, people have review performance isn't necessarily consistent from one manager to the next. And that's one of the reasons I'll talk about calibration, which you can actually help that. And another point that I've experienced myself is where the rating then becomes the focus rather than the discussion. All of these are solvable if... We're well educated, but it's where we refer to people as, oh, they were a three or they're a four or whatever. People are not numbers. It should be their performance was rated at a three last year. Uh, But it can overwhelm the conversation, which of course this then comes back to what is the purpose of the conversation. So, what can we do about this? Because are they a necessary evil or is there a way in which we can harness the benefits without um, succumbing to the negatives of them? Well, these are the points that I would make here. First of all, Understand, as I said earlier, what's the purpose of the appraisal and make sure everybody understands that and We've been talking about ongoing performance year-round conversations If you only have an annual appraisal and it links to performance ratings and reward Then the likelihood is the focus is going to be about the rating Maybe this is why you need to put energy into embedding a culture of more frequent conversations at different points in the year And ensuring that, let's say, a development conversation takes place at the mid-year point or at a quarter, um, at the early quarter in the year. We talk about year round performance management where you might talk about development at the end of quarter one, maybe talent management at the end of quarter three. And maybe you talk about performance ratings at the half year point and the end of the year point. What that means is you have cleaner conversations throughout the year. The ratings conversations are about ratings, everyone understands that, and the uh, talent, the engagement, the development conversations steer clear of ratings and they are about motivation, engagement and developing people. So think about how you can repurpose your performance management cycle to encourage and align ratings where they're necessary and make sure they're not there where they're not. I would avoid having one of these 10-page appraisal forms, which has got ratings all the way through and incorporates talent management, uh, career conversations, all within that same performance rating document, because those are incongruent conversations. I've got one here, which um, I call five-point scales, which this came out of a conversation with a colleague that I used to work with, and I think she's got a point. Five-point scales are really common. I come across them, so whether or not we talk about terminology I'll talk about in the next one but we do have a tendency to go to the centre in some things play it safe by going going three now the danger with that is if I'm a manager and I rate that person a three whatever that might mean hopefully it doesn't say average but even if that says performs or meets then I might well find that people consider that to be demotivational because they look at it in relation to the overall scale so they see that they are in the middle And in reality, most managers only use points two to four, and with the majority using a three. And so because people don't use the outsides of the range, it's really only a three-point scale. I've found that you could just remove five and have a four-point scale. The reality is hardly anybody uses one. They're still using ratings two to four. But if you are, therefore, a three out of a four-point scale, rate a day, I'm using that terminology, if your rating is a three out of a four-point scale then actually it doesn't feel as average to people. They feel slightly happier. Just think it's a simple and possibly more effective way of making the experience more positive. And I hadn't thought of it until I tried to roll this out years ago with an organisation and people were complaining about the five point. They said, oh, it's still average. We're going, no, it means this is fully meets. Uh, And when we removed that five, it just seemed to take away some of that argument. Terminology. So I've seen many rating scales that have terminology which is underwhelming at best, but could be considered as negative. Uh, Often this is particularly bad in organisations that have got translations. I'll say no more, having worked for a German company. But do you really want, if you've bust your guts, you've achieved all of your really stretching objectives, and then your performance is labelled average, people just don't want that or acceptable Uh, or worse simply three so have a think about how you can put language in place maybe you don't even need numbers at the end of the day you know what the numbers are going to be if you're doing some sort of calibration and use more aspirational language like fully achieved or complete performance it just makes people happier but it also probably makes managers life a bit more easy or less painful to be honest if the language is more attractive It partially meets or almost achieved is much better than underperformance. So think about the language. I've talked about things I alluded to objectives earlier. And of course, just remember that, uh, and I talked about it in relation to how you might under or overperform, try to ensure that if you are using ratings against objectives, that people write objectives that they can overachieve. So if you've got to achieve 100% of something, how do you overachieve it? So... That's where the skill of a manager talking to an individual about what their milestones might be. Uh, Otherwise, it's demotivational because the highest I can ever get is achieved. So make sure that when people are setting objectives, they consider how they're going to be able to rate performances along the scale as well, if that's how your system is set up. I talked earlier about the purpose of it. I personally think that if you are in an organisation and I see this, in, I see this in the NHS actually and and other sort of government organisations is where they put ratings in but there isn't a positive consequence so if well, certainly they haven't got the ability to align pay against it because of the way it's set up people might be at the top of the top of their band so they can't um, earn any more so even if I achieve an outstanding performance I can't do anything with it. If you are going to put ratings in and you're not able to remunerate and I would strongly suggest you either take them out or you put in place some sort of talent program or development program that there is a consequence basically there needs to be a consequence it needs to be slightly motivational for people to go through that pain of rating so do think about that if there isn't a if there isn't a purpose of rating then why are we doing it and if there is a purpose or if we are rating then make sure there is a purpose or consequence now Calibration. When I was looking at the, one of the arguments made in the uh, the journal article that I talked about earlier, there is certainly one of the arguments against using ratings was the fact that people do not rate performance consistently. Certainly, I see that a lot in three hundred and sixty feedback. A manager might see performance in a different way from someone's subordinates. Um, that's probably really normal because it's the context or the environment, the way in which you see people. Uh, they, to a certain extent. They say that actually doing calibration where you've got peer rating, that will actually improve performance and you can get greater consistency. And my experience of calibration is that actually managers learn through calibration where they realise that the way they see performance or their evidence for high performance may not necessarily stack up against their peers. So whether it's the averaging out of the rating by talking to other people or whether it's just that level of feedback of how... Your perception stacks up against that of your peers. Calibration is certainly a way. If you're going to link to pay, uh, I would strongly recommend that you use some sort of calibration process to ensure that it's done well and fairly. And then, my po- final point uh, that I say avoid at all costs, and I don't think people do this anymore, but do you remember the, the sort of GE days when they used to talk about a bell curve and the top 10% would, I don't know what would happen, those would be promoted, the bottom 10% would be sacked. and that's one thing if it was a normal distribution, not so particularly like it if it's normal distribution anyway, but what's even worse is if you force people into normal distribution. If you're putting ratings in place in your organisation, then it's maybe about getting some sort of clarity and robust uh, quant- quantitable data on performance. Remember that people are people. It will take a while for... Um, people to have strong, smart objectives that can be rated fairly. It'll take a while for managers to have the skills and confidence to rate effectively and for calibration to become a norm. What I would never, ever want to do is say you can only ever have a normal distribution. If you're going to distribute reward, it is better, in my opinion, to take your skewed distribution post-calibration and distribute the reward in line with whatever that is. In future years, hopefully it will become more of a normal distribution, but I would never want you to go, you can only have a certain number of high performers in your organization. Now, I think the main way of solving that is at calibration. If I'm a manager saying that all of my team are high performers, yet we haven't achieved any of our team goals, then it would be perfectly fair to knock those scores down. But it's not. that's not the same as uh, saying, I'm afraid you're not allowed to have five people who are high performers, because it's not reality. With a small population, you need an, at least 100 people to have a normal distribution, I'd say more. So that's something that I would say is just avoid that at all costs, if you can manage that within your organisation. So those are my thoughts uh, against ratings. And a number of those were the ones that were concur with the argument that was put forward in the is our ratings folly or genius debate Uh, The few key points that I perhaps pull out of here to save you reading the journal, but if you want to read the actual article, I'll put a link to it. One point is that all the evidence suggests that people who are using performance appraisals and ratings, they are still doing that, or certainly they appeared to be doing that, according to Lawler, Benson and McDermott in 2012. Now it's going back a little bit, um, but it does seem that people are still doing that because they're not quite sure that there's a better way of doing things yet. One of the points that they say is, how can we improve rating scales? And this is something that I I talked about in relation to maybe how big the rating scale was. And I talked about it about aspirational language. But if we talk about things like competency scales, then there's suggestion that they can be more effective. If you want people to rate performance against behaviours, you will get... Probably better information if you can be explicit about what good looks like in terms of a behaviour. So, if I was to say a competency of, com- of communication skills, can I be explicit about what exceptional communication skills look like? Can I put two or three behaviours um, as behavioural indicators there? And equally, what does poor communication look like? So that I could then look at that as a map and compare that against the behaviours that I'm seeing. So, having behaviours that that can help that a lot. One of the other suggestions is they talk about is, is rater training. And again, I would believe that making sure that managers understand how to rate is important. And I personally believe that putting people through an experience of calibration is probably one of the most powerful ways of learning on the job how effective you are at rating performance or consistent. However, it's interesting that it's not necessarily the, the thinking in this article is that what stops people from rating effectively isn't the fact that they don't know how to, it's the fact that they don't want to. So going back to this point that actually we're not motivated to do it, we we don't we are don't want to have the conflict, the difficult conversation. So where does that leave us? To rate or not to rate? Well, unfortunately, I think the answer genuinely is it depends. Let's think about what is the purpose of our appraisal and what are the consequences of having ratings here. Certainly, I think ratings can be a hindrance to conversation. So how can you maybe keep them to a minimum? If you need to have some level of rating in order to be a meritocracy in order to attribute reward. So I think it depends. And are they folly or genius? Again, that depends. It's probably somewhere in the middle. And that's our role as HR professionals to look at the environment that we're in and make suggestions as to what is the best way of achieving the outcome we need within the environment we're working for. So, Hopefully, with some of those considerations we've put in place, you can think about this in your environment. and my question to you would be, how effective you know if ratings are being used in your organization, how effectively are they being used? Are they achieving the purpose that you want them to do? Do you have to have them there at all? Or are there ways in which you could strip bits of the appraisal out to do it different parts of the year, which would mean you get the best of both worlds maybe uh, conversation and uh, some objective data to be able to achieve your outcomes i'd be really interested in people's experiences and recommendations because it definitely depends from environment to environment as ever there will be links to both the uh, paper the journal article that i've referred to and our white paper to rate or not to rate in the show notes and any other useful information i'll add below please do feel free to get in touch i love hearing from you thank you to those of you who are joining us on linkedin joining the hr uprising group Um, At time of recording this, we're over 5,000 downloads. So I would hope we would be higher than that by the time this goes out in about three or four weeks. And if you're enjoying what we're doing, please tell other people who might be interested in contributing or listening. Thanks once again. This has been Lucinda Carney on the HR Uprising podcast. Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising podcast. You can access more information, including resources or links mentioned in the show at our website, www.hruprising.com. Also, you might want to join our LinkedIn community or tweet to us at HR Uprising. We'd love to hear from you.